Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey everyone, it's Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong, and today I am joined by my two guests who I will have them introduce themselves because I have butchered their names so many times at this point. So, Seisei Cosmo, welcome. Hi, thanks. Actually, you got our names perfectly just yeah, now. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a last name situation I'm having some <laughs> problems with, okay? So, I'm Seisei Tatebe Gadu. And I'm Cosmo Fujiyama Gaznavi. You did great. You're underselling yourself. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So supportive. So tell us a little bit about yourselves and your journeys to leadership. So the journey of leadership, my career has primarily been in the social impact sector at large. And my passion and my my what you know really gets me out up every day is my love for learning and what can learning look like in the future? So I've worked in nonprofits, I've worked in higher ed, and I've worked for grassroots organizing organizations that really are about helping people learn how to grow. Um, And I create curriculum, I create experiences, I bring educators together, and it's all about learning as a community, as a, a pathway to how we liberate you know, our own selves into being the best versions of ourselves. So that's what I love to do. And I live in, in Brooklyn, New York, right here. Woo-hoo, Brooklyn. Yeah, Brooklyn. So my most recent position was as chief operating officer at Run for Something. I was the first hire brought on when they first were founded in 2017 to help build out the team. So, you know, as first hire, I think automatically thrown into positions of leadership. Prior to that, I had actually started my own company. So I bypassed, I think, what a lot of other people, particularly women and women of color, go through by saying, I'm not even going to play the game and I'm just going to circumvent it entirely and do my own thing. Love that. We're going to circle back to that because I think that's a super interesting point. So I'll give the audience a little bit of background. We actually all became friends because we host a monthly Asian boss lady dinner, and it's a group of professional Asian American women who are interested in supporting each other, but also pushing the conversation around Asian American issues, particularly as it pertains to women. And it just so happens that two of you are also in the social sector, social impact space. So I'm wondering as Asian American women and working in sort of progressive social sector spaces, Where do you find yourselves in the conversation about DEI? Because I feel like the DEI conversation tends to be very black and white or brown and white. And and like as Asian American women, I'm wondering where do we fit into that? And do you find that there's an invisibility being an Asian person? I studied American studies and women's studies in undergrad and had a really a strong appetite for really understanding my own identity and my history as a Japanese American woman born of two immigrants. And it's a vital part of my own, what I call personal equity work of understanding who am I? Where do I come from? What's my narrative? What's my history? And then what are the communities and ancestors that have helped me be where I am today? So because of that kind of awareness back in the early 2000s, it's in the DEI work now, it's you know, I can't say that my Asian American identity is something that's invisible in the network in the, in the, for me because it's something that's been vital to the way I identify as a as a proud Japanese American daughter of immigrants. And it also has helped me understand that 
That's also not the case for a lot of other people. I studied Asian American history in undergrad. I paid money. In fact, my, my dad was like, you paid four years of college to learn 400 years of history? I was like, but dad, we, we did a lot of bad things in America in those four years. He's like, we learned 400 years in first grade in Japan. So he, has, he does not have a Southern accent, by the way. But I think, you know, for me, because it's something that's been core, to what I have studied and understood about myself. It's been something that's very much on the forefront. And to be honest, the conversations about diversity, I was having those in the early 2000s with my communities. But again, you know, America with 330 million people, we're talking five, six million of us are Asian American or identify as that on the like the census report. So it's a smaller group of people. And in terms of the lack of homogeneity in that, mm-hmm. there's so many cultures and languages and, and, and backgrounds involved that within the Asian American community, there's so much diversity. So at the table, when we show up to these DEI dialogues, you know, one cannot not state that like it's a lot about the Asian American community also coming together to talk about issues that might be different and really understanding each other. And then, you know, being at the table with, I think, enough support to do that. I had the personal inclination to go and really understand how is my diverse perspective adding to the table. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of other people in the Asian American community, that may not have been the case. Mm -hmm. So I think that is creating a little bit of what might it be hesitation or a prioritization in terms of how people talk about diversity when when they are Asian American. Mm -hmm. Out of curiosity, Cosmo, where did you grow up? I was born in San Francisco, and I grew up in suburban Virginia. In a mostly white community? Mostly white. Okay. And Rhea, you grew up in California, right? I grew up in the heart of San Francisco with all of the Asian people. So what we were talking (laughs) about before we started this interview was like, for me, being Asian was so much just a part of everyday life that it, like, I didn't realize it. Well, frankly, I didn't even realize that being Asian was in the minority because growing mm-hmm. up in San Francisco, we're mm-hmm. in the majority. Yeah, right. And it wasn't really until I went to boarding school in Southern California <laughs> that I was like, oh, everyone's not Asian? Weird. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, what? You've never met an Asian person because my yeah. entire life was in a very sheltered Chinese-American community. Yeah. How about you, Sese? My family moved a lot growing up, and I grew up in predominantly white communities, and my dad is white, so I'm half Japanese. And there was this interesting paradox, and I think, you know, when you ask the question around how do I interact with DEI, what are my thoughts on it, paradox is the word that keeps coming up for me. Because while I did experience a lot of racism growing up and went through a whole experience where I rejected my mom and my mom's culture and everything associated with that in order to try to assimilate and to fit in. I also didn't identify as a person of color until I was in college. And I went to a program that had an anti-racism part of its curriculum. And that was the moment when I realized that the way other people saw me was not actually the way that I saw myself. And I had to do Mm -hmm. a lot of work around unpacking that and understanding that and understanding how it affected how I interacted with the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So it's a very complicated 
topic for me. And what happens when I'm in rooms, and I, Cosmo, I would be interested to hear from you how often you find yourself in rooms with other Asians, because I remember the first time I came to Asian Boss Ladies, I walked into the room. It was a room full of Asian women from different Asian backgrounds, but all Asian, right? Everyone has dark hair. And I walked in and I just went, oh my God, I'm never in these rooms. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about DEI, it's it's complex mm -hmm. because at the same time, if I'm in a room full of Asian women, I want to advocate for those women. If I'm in a room and I'm the only Asian and it's predominantly white people and I've got one or two brown or black, my responsibility in that room is to advocate for the black and brown people in the room mm. and not for the Asians. And I find that to be very complicated. Yes. Yeah, say more about that because I, I also wonder, I mean, I think that there's this narrative that Asians are apolitical, right? And so when we yep. look at these very important social movements like Black Lives Matter or like protests against our current immigration policies, I think it's both that politicians and policymakers aren't necessarily talking to the Asian American community. And I also don't think that Asian Americans are really showing up in visible ways. So I'm just like, what responsibility do we have as Asian Americans to be shoulder to shoulder with other folks of color? Well, I think the recent case around Harvard and the lawsuit of the lawsuit against Harvard is actually a really good example of how white conservatives in this country have tried to use Asian Americans as chess pieces in arguments and policy decisions and debates like affirmative action, that they're trying to use it as a wedge issue. And so that's, again, why I find it, you know, when I am in rooms, I find it really necessary for me to make my stance known that I'm here to use my privilege, whatever privilege I have, to advocate for black and brown bodies in spaces they don't, that they don't typically have access to. And I think that if I were closer to the Asian community, that I would probably start folding them into that. But I don't tend to work with Asian communities that closely. And so I haven't felt as much of a need to do that. Mm -hmm. I think also that there's this perception that Asians have made it, right? That like in the 1970s, there was a journalist who said, you know, Asians have outwhited the whites, mm. that we've made it. And so in the back of my head, there's this narrative, as much as I know that it's wrong, there's this narrative that has embedded itself in my brain that we don't need as much help as other people in this country do. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think these narratives run deep. And for me, I find myself in the social impact sector, actually a lot of Asian females hmm. um, that are involved. My two brothers, both of them are in the social impact space in, in different ways as well. And maybe that's something in the, our family DNA. But I find that when Asians are participating, at least in my experience inside of these nonprofits, I would love to see my brothers and sisters of Asian backgrounds speaking up a little bit more, mm. kind of putting more of their stories on the line around what is right or wrong. And whether it's being an ally to the brown and black you know, brothers and sisters on our teams, it's really more about themselves. I think that the Asian American community at large struggles with voicing what it is that their agenda is, what, yeah. is it the, the, what are the issues that matter, what are the things that we believe need to be different. Mm -hmm. That's what I would love to see more of in, the, in that case. 
I can't point to an organization or maybe even a movement right now where Asian Americans are gathered around political issues, getting ready for 2020 as an example. Mm -hmm. What are the issues affecting our communities? Mm -hmm. I know they're out there. And if you're out out there, let's get in touch. Call us. (laughs) You know, I think it's important that we talk and, and mobilize our communities. But I really found this work around understanding my identity and my background as an important part of my work. But if you, and I speak a lot with my undergraduate colleagues or my undergraduate professors, one of them, Frances Tangle Aguas, a huge mentor of mine at William & Mary where I went to undergrad is organizing a steering committee of Asian American Pacific Islander alumni to bring us together to go, because we're going to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the first person of color to be admitted to America's second oldest university, which is the College of William and Mary. Mm. And this person, Art Matsu, was an Asian man mm. mm-hmm. that got admitted. And I think it's really important for me that, you know, our history is really, really long and there's a lot of also trauma and complication in that. Mm-hmm. And we come for many of us from countries where political organizing was what got us in jail. Right. And so our parents might not be encouraging us to necessarily be out there hitting the streets and instead hitting the books, Mm -hmm. right, which is definitely the stereotype that you see. But I think I like to see the bravery in our community come out even more and for more stories to be told about the successful grassroots organizers and the people out there talking and advocating for the issues, because there's a lot Mm -hmm. that doesn't get talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, take my own personal responsibility in that. You Mm -hmm. know, I think that. I generally work in the social impact sector for the goodness of all and don't necessarily think, okay, well, what is the the advocacy issue or the impact that's necessary in the Asian American community as like a second thought? Mm-hmm. And that's maybe something where I can grow in. Yeah. I, I often think, too, that this idea of a pan-Asian identity is really mm. hard because I think because we've sort of relatively recently been immigrants to this country, we hew very closely to being a Chinese American or a Korean right. American or a Japanese American right. or an Indian American as opposed to this repan Asian identity. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the issues that I have struggled with is that, you know, it's not just a racial issue. It mm. is a class issue mm-hmm. that part of the reason I have privilege and another Asian American does not is partly because of class. And we didn't grow up wealthy, but my parents, my father was an academic, my mother is a concert pianist, and they fought for me to become educated and to get to where I was, right? And so that's why I talk about being in rooms where I have some degree of privilege. And so, you know, how am I going to use that privilege? Who am I going to fight for? And sadly, Asians are tend not to get to the top of my list because I think I don't see them out in the streets. I don't see them politically active. When you think about what happened to the Japanese Americans in the 1940s, right, the message was very clearly keep your head down. Mm-hmm. And even if you do keep your head down, keep you're your head still, down you're white, still please, screwed. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're still going to throw you in a camp, right? So, yeah, it's a very complicated issue. And part of it, I think Cosmo is right, part of it is on me to educate myself and to reach out to groups to better learn Mm -hmm. how I can support. I I think what many people may not realize is that the Asian American community has the largest income disparity within any ethnic racial group. And I think that's something to recognize to your point around class is that 
we have people that have just moved from as refugees from Burma, from right. other p- countries where they're leaving as political refugees trying to make it in this country. And I think it's important that the the connecting issue might be sometimes the immigrant narrative, right? What is mm-hmm. it like to become an immigrant in this country? Mm-hmm. And we actually have, I don't know if people know this, but we actually have more people that are immigrants population-wise than Latinos. Mm-hmm. We have more Latinos that are immigrants as like a, a, a numerical number, but in terms of the proportion of people that identify as immigrants or kids of immigrants, mm-hmm. we are much larger. And I think that's yeah. a missed opportunity mm-hmm. around yeah. talking about that as a big part Agreed. of our of our background, mm-hmm. you know, when immigration allowed us to kind of come in and what that was, what, 1965 in the 1960s. And then from there, like, I think I really identify as a daughter of immigrants. That's an identity that has been a big part of my upbringing, which was like, you know, we're going to not understand this language. <laughs> we're not yeah. going to understand a lot of things, but we're going to try to make it as a family. Yeah. And I think that's something that is really relevant right now. Like, how are we going to make this country? Mm-hmm. Well, it's going right. to be about immigrants redefining and shaping this 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 country forward. But that's what I would love to see more in the in the community in that mm-hmm. dialogue. So I'm going to switch tests a little bit here because this is nonprofit lowdown. So we'd like to talk about the business of nonprofits. And mm-hmm. both of you and myself have all been in positions of leadership at, at sort of the executive level. And for those of you who don't know. Asian Americans are the least likely statistically to be promoted to levels of executive leadership. So they're often in sort of second level, you know, COO type roles, but often are not seen as quote unquote leadership material, also known as the bamboo ceiling. So I'm curious in your respective careers, have you felt any of that? Has that been a factor in your careers? Yeah, it's funny, Rhea. I have never heard the term bamboo ceiling until you said it today. I sent my email. And it's and it <laughs> always is. learning, say <laughs> always learning, always learning. It's a cool visual. I'm like that offers a lot of shade. It's very, <laughs> very functional. You would think that would be easier to break through. <laughs> bamboo is actually very strong. Is, I know the tensile strength of bamboo is quite impressive. Have I experienced it? I mean. Probably. (laughs) Right. I mean, for sure, I think we all probably have dating horror stories of. Oh, that is a whole other podcast. (laughs) That's the After Hours podcast. (laughs) Right. So, so if it exists there, then it definitely exists professionally. I'm trying, to be honest, I'm trying to, to recall some, you know, anything that anyone has said to me professionally. I tend to come out the gate pretty bold. <laughs> so you didn't get the memo about being a meek Asian woman. I, I think all of us missed that. <laughs> yeah, I think we all missed that memo. But I have had reactions, and this is why I bring the dating thing up, I have had reactions from people where they expected me to be meek and mm. quiet and mm-hmm. docile, even after they had interacted with me for a couple of years. And I was like, have you met me? I feel like maybe you've misread the last two years of our interactions, but nobody's ever said it to me, to my face professionally. Hmm. Interesting. Possibly because they're too scared to. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you are kind yeah. of fierce. I'd, I'd, be yeah. little, I'd be a little afraid yeah. too as well. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. <laughs> you might hit them with the bamboo, you know? <laughs> for me, I'll be honest, I think, you know, for me growing up, 
I was aware that I had a lot of power and charisma and like love kind of being in community talking. I was like class president. You know, I did all of that to fit into white culture. Mm-hmm. I was head cheerleader. You know, I did all that stuff. And so all this I like been learning about you. Oh, yes. Let's go. And no, <laughs> I had no I, idea you were I, a cheerleader. I did that because I enjoy arts and creativity and performance. And I also, I think I struggled internally with taking up space. Mm. Like in my culture, in my my grandparents' culture, like, yeah, like being really loud, hashtag American, you know, was kind yeah. of seen as a little bit disrespectful in some contexts. Mm-hmm. It's changed now, but, and my parents were super great. Like raising us in America, they were never, you know, too hands-on or too hands-off about which identity to, to wrap into. But I didn't see a lot of role models mm. of badass yeah. Asian ladies yeah. kicking ass, but also kind, mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah. is always what my parents taught me, right? And I yeah. think that I, I didn't see kind of that marriage around me. And so I probably actually had a little bit more of like that internalized suppression mm-hmm. of my greatness because I was like, you know, I don't want to take up space, too much space. Mm-hmm. But like I have all the space I want to take up as well. So I think there was something there that I'm very aware of. I even actually in one incident got feedback from a supervisor that I was too charismatic and I was overshadowing somebody else. And that really (laughs) affected me. It was early in my career. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I didn't have, well, maybe whatever. It was what it is. But like, the awareness that that was another form of oppression around my own my own strength, and it mm-hmm. mattered that this was a you know a white male individual. Mm-hmm. So I think that like the bamboo ceiling is an interesting idea for me. It's actually more personal mm-hmm. that I have worked through and feel much more just like in love with my power, in love with my strength and my voice, and and wielding it responsibly. But also, you know, I think understanding that it's it's not just about, you know, other people and their kind of perception of you. It's just really my own work. So, like, mm-hmm. that's that's a theme that's coming up. It's like I'm aware that, yeah, I probably didn't raise my hand for the thing or didn't mm-hmm. say I got it. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. I was probably, yes, I'll be the support for you mm-hmm. m- much more often than maybe, you know, taking the helm. But then everything is perception. My parents would probably say, you did not see no bamboo ceiling at all. Right. Right. You were like as right. go-getter as they come. So it's kind of relative in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's coming up for me. I do think that there, and Cosmo alluded to this, that there is a lot of us having to navigate things by ourselves. Mm. That yes. Because we didn't have the role models, right? When I saw Crazy Rich Asians, I cannot... And again, same reaction as when I walked into the Asian boss ladies' room. I saw that movie, and yeah, we had Joy Luck Club. Okay, fine. <laughs> but one movie in 30 years, right. thanks for nothing. You know, but I saw Crazy Rich Asians, and I just thought, who are these badasses on screen and where have they been all my life apparently in China because they're just raking it in over in China but not having those kinds of role models not having people who can show you yes you can be aggressive and brazen and assertive and get what you want and all of these things and be kind and gentle and do it with grace and all of these things I think that would have been really helpful growing up, Mm -hmm. trying to answer some of these questions, because the common thread for me growing up, especially in white communities, was loneliness. Mm -hmm. I did not 
who was I going to talk to? And my mom's experience was not, you know, she spent 12 years in Berlin, left Japan. So she doesn't, she also has like a very unique experience and not one that is easily applied here. My dad, I think, would be shocked to know about some of the racism that I experienced as a kid. Mm-hmm. So who was I going to go to to ask some of these questions? I love what you say, though, when you listed out those qualities. To me, is actually this question about what is leadership. Right. And, you know, that is something that I know a lot of my friends are conscious of, like this new form of leadership, whether it's Asian, Black, Latina, Latino. Like it's it's this new form that isn't like a this or that. It's a yes and. Right. But yeah. you're right. Like we have to map and walk the walk of that mm-hmm. and without role model, how yeah. do we do that with yeah. co-leadership, right? With each other. Like I looked at the two of you and I'm blown away by the grace, the humility and the badassery. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the bamboo ceiling for us. And for me, it's like, we got to visualize that to get there. And I think talking more about how, how do we see more of that in our politics and our fortune 500s? Like mm-hmm. I just, I remember Christy Yamaguchi was like the person yeah. that was yeah. like a real human doing cool, cool <laughs> yep. shit. Yeah. And then yep. came Michelle Kwan, like right. have yep. a t-shirt with her face on it still. Like, yeah. and that was about it, to be honest. Just like Lucy Liu on Allie McBeal. I mean, like, <laughs> right. I mean them on like right. one hand. Right. right. I mean, thank goodness now, Aquafina, like right. Allie Wong, yeah. like let's go, let's do this. You know, I want to be your friend if you're listening, you know, let's hang out. <laughs> but that is new. Yeah. So, like, what are the Asian women and Asian girls looking at now? Yeah. I really hope they, you know, see a new form of leadership. Absolutely. And I think that's where the Mm pan-Asian piece comes in, right? That people who make it, especially Asian women who make it, doesn't matter if you're Japanese or Chinese or Filipina or whatever, you made it through all sorts of shit. And so can we all as a group collectively celebrate that? Mm -hmm. Because that is worth celebrating. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's almost like we need the Shonda Rhimes of the Asian community, right? Yeah, it's like right. we're all like, I think yes, so. right? Or, you know, yeah. yes. Asian yeah. Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Rhea, you have been referred to as Asian well, Oprah recently, so. I, I don't think it counts if I refer to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Oprah had to call herself Oprah before she became That's Oprah. True. That's true. <laughs> but you know what, what you what you say, and actually, this has been a sort of recurring theme on this podcast, is for women of color leaders across the board. There's a sense of translation, and mm-hmm. I think that our perceived liabilities have actually become assets because we are fluent in many different cultures. So whether it's growing up as an Asian American and having to navigate predominantly white culture, whether it's, you know, growing up middle class and having to navigate very wealthy or not very privileged backgrounds. Like I think adaptability and flexibility is a thing that we have as part of the upbringing of being a non-white person in this country. Yes. Yeah. And so I think, Cosmo, your point about like, how do we really take those and make them strengths and a new model of leadership is really interesting to me. Because let's also face it, like, the old patriarchal white male model is dying. And it's not working for a lot of us. Yeah. So, I feel like I have all the questions. So, in a, in a practical way, for Asian Americans who are listening, who are, like, down for the cause, how do you think that we can participate in equity work in a really responsible and socially progressive way 
while also honoring our own identity and our own backgrounds. Woo! <laughs> you said this was 30 minutes. <laughs> I mean, no, that does stop me in my tracks. I think in that the gravitas of that question and the importance of answering that with a lot of seriousness, mm-hmm. because I don't really see it always working very effectively, whether you're Asian, Black, Latinx. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, to me, a really important ground setting around language Mm -hmm. and how people are showing up to the table and the personal equity work I think is the most important recipe a piece ingredient missing in the recipe Mm -hmm. what do I mean by that is that you're understanding your responsibility in this work to understand your own positionality to things you're you're understanding your own history in relation to other people Mm -hmm. and to be curious enough to ask and learn Mm -hmm. and I think that's the ground setting that I have yet to see really solid examples of, even though I'm working in a lot of progressive environments. Mm -hmm. I think that's why our Asian Boss Ladies Dinner is a part of that because it's creating a safe container for people to really fully show up and do that work. Mm -hmm. It's a muscle. And the more that we practice that and value it as a part of our lived experience, I hope that people then show up in their professional environments and can call out and redesign policies. That's where the game is. Mm. Org design. How are we designing these organizations and the policies that will stick around to include or dis- disinclude other people? And I think that's where I'm hoping some of our, you know, you know, strong brothers and sisters that are in ops heavy roles, if that's the case, like that's a big part in which we can play a role Mm -hmm. reshaping org design Mm -hmm. policies that are holding some people back or not Mm -hmm. i think that you know it would be interesting to to really understand from a from from that perspective if there's like a lever there that might be unique for us Mm. interesting yeah i think we are approaching well i think we have needed this for a long time but we're approaching kind of a moment where we can no longer ignore that we need everyone who is even remotely interested in making the world better for other people. We need you to step out and step up Mm. every single one of you, whether that means that you run for office, which I hope you do, whether you are going out and getting more politically active by voting and knocking on doors. You know, I was just thinking about this as Cosmo was talking. I, am now a professor. I teach a class once a once a week to master's students. And I was just trying to remember if I had a single Asian professor during college or grad school. Mm-hmm. And so in realizing that it's possible that I have not had a single Asian female professor mm-hmm. in all of those years at two pretty prestigious institutions, to realize that maybe that is also part of my stepping up and stepping out is to be that professor and Mm -hmm. be that person because representation matters. Mm -hmm. And so I think everyone, but in particular Asians and in particular Asian women, you got to get really comfortable with being uncomfortable over the next few years because we need you to start, as Cosmo said earlier, we need you to start making some noise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's time to make mm-hmm. some noise. Yeah. Last question, and I want to loop back to this, is say, say, you and I have talked a lot about what it means to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> and of late, I've been encouraging everyone to like leave their job and start their own <laughs> company. So I'm sure lots of boards are not happy with me right now. But I, I think that there's something very interesting because I, I thought a lot about this, which is 
Asians in particular have become successful in this country because they're entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. right? Like my grandparents came to this country with no money and they had little mom and pop groceries in the Mission and the Fillmore. And so in some ways, the entrepreneurship is in our DNA. And yet, a lot of Asian parents are like, once we've made it, like, you need to find that good, stable job at mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs and mm -hmm. get your salary and like, that's it. So I'm just wondering, Stacey, if you could talk a little bit about starting your own business and what you've learned from that and how it helped you to avoid all of the potential political trappings of race, class, gender in the... Mm. It's a very, very big question, so I'll yeah. get into <laughs> it however you want. a huge question. Well, so, as I said earlier, my dad's an academic, my mom's a concert pianist, so certainly no one was pushing me to become a doctor or, you know, I think they both kind of grew up and were like, our kid's going to do whatever our kid's going to do. Also recognized that I was super stubborn at a very early age <laughs> and that they kidding. had, yeah, I can't, yeah, it's so hard Shocker. to imagine, right? So they, I'm very grateful that they gave me a very wide range and latitude to just do whatever I was going to do. The way that I started my company is a bit bizarre in that I started it when I already had a couple of clients. Those clients were based in the Middle East. It made the most sense for me for four years to be based in Jordan. And so I worked primarily with clients in the Middle East, East Africa, and Europe for several years. So very strange, weird context. I will tell you that being a single Asian woman trying to navigate work, build a client base, be out on a street <laughs> walking around in the Middle East was not easy. Yeah. I was commonly mistaken for a Filipina housemaid. Navigating that was very difficult and draining. And I came back to the States primarily because I needed a break. Mm -hmm. I was burned out and I needed to just get away from it for a little while. I don't regret the time that I spent there, but it was a very difficult kind of social context to navigate. What's interesting is when I came back to the States, I did my grad degree at Columbia, and then I was very hesitant to start the next thing because I was so tired. And the reality is that entrepreneurship, regardless of who you are, is an exhausting, draining thing, and you have to have the energy for it. And if you don't have it, then fuck it. So I wasn't ready to start my own thing. I started working for organizations in the United States, in New York City. That was the first time, really, in maybe eight years that I was working for someone else. Mm. And that was actually traumatic for me. It was way more traumatic Preach than being an entrepreneur. Yeah, it was way more traumatic Why than being that? an entrepreneur. Because she's ungovernable. <laughs> <laughs> Partly. It is a situation specific to the organization that I was working for. The executive director really had it in for me. And actually, in a just to completely contradict something I said earlier, that I think was racially motivated. Mm -hmm. I think he had it in for me because I was an Asian woman. Really? Yeah. That's just a theory. Mm -hmm. I have no real, you know, there's no ability to prove that. Mm -hmm. But it was an extremely unpleasant experience. And I came out of that really questioning my abilities, wondering if I had what it took. Mm. That was kind of tied into like being in New York City. Like, could I just not hack it in New York? Mm. Or was it, mm -hmm. you know, was it specific to me? Was it specific to the city? Like, what is going on? 
But that actually was the most traumatizing thing mm. that that has happened to me in my career. And it took time to come out of that. Mm -hmm. The reason why I hesitate to couch that in purely racial terms, though, is because I've had so many conversations with other people, primarily women, and it doesn't matter what race, what class, where you grew up, which country you're in. The number of women that I've had conversations with who have gone through situations like that, where they have been demoralized, the behavior is borderline or absolutely abusive mm -hmm. is astonishing to me. Mm -hmm. There's something about work culture in America specifically mm -hmm. that tells people it is okay for you to act like this towards your subordinates. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely unacceptable. And that's the thing that ne needs to change. And it's not race or class or mm -hmm. geography dependent. Mm -hmm. It is a whole bunch of people who got to where they are and think that it is okay to be abusive. Mm. No longer, guys. Yeah. That's changing. Yeah. Time's up. Time's up. Mm -hmm. As they say. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I also had a recent situation where I was made to feel like I didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, and I have built a successful nonprofit. I'm well regarded in my field. And even just that short experience really undermined my own sort of sense of self-worth and self-confidence. And I was like, how is that possible? Like, I've spent my entire career building this up only to get it knocked down in a very short time. So I think you're right, which is like there's something very unhealthy about the current models of work that we have that is not serving the well-being of people. Let's right. not even say women or people of color, just people. Right. The gaslighting is extraordinary. Isn't it? And though? how quickly yeah. it can tap into the doubts that you feel mm -hmm. yourself mm -hmm. and exploit them is extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. Imposter syndrome, for sure, that kind of comes out to the forefront. I mean, what you're saying, Seisei, got me thinking about, you know, a couple different things, but primarily when it comes down to our work environments and what are the norms that we have now brought forward or not, especially in entrepreneurship. I started my journey, I actually graduated with this American Studies and Women's Studies degree, and I started a nonprofit in Honduras, and I lived there for three years. My brother's still there running the organization. And it's really remarkable in, in many ways. But the the big problem, I think, with entrepreneurship or starting your own nonprofit, and maybe, Rhea, you had the similar challenge, but we struggle, I think, people of color overall in raising a family, friends and family round mm -hmm. in terms of money. Oh, the fundraising. Yeah, access to yeah. capital. Yeah, Camelback thing. Ventures is an awesome organization that's yep. trying to, to basically address that head on and say, look, it's really hard for people of color to rely on their friends and family to raise mm -hmm. their first round, which usually comes with zero interest. Sometimes right. it's a, actually a gift right. versus to a loan. And I think that is the biggest struggle that I would love to see is like, where's our capital coming from? Right. Who is supporting the businesses that then value those norms and the orb design that we're talking about mm -hmm. so that we can really be thriving out the gate. I know from my immigrant parents, I learned that struggle is a part of the process mm -hmm. and you'll, you'll get there. But I struggle with sometimes, right? Like I'm not struggling anymore in that definition, but you know, if you come from a background where you're lower middle class and you're wondering where your next, you know, paycheck is coming mm -hmm. in and you're in the social impact sector where it's more volatile sometimes, you know, we're putting up people who really care about these missions into really, you know, unsavory situations. So mm -hmm. how are we thinking about 
the capital necessary to see the type of companies that we really aspire to participate in or to build. So that's something, too, that I think, you know, what I love to see our community talking about Mm -hmm. as more and more people end up, I think, you know, generating their own wealth and investing back in their communities. But that's a big that's a big kind of like, you know, opportunity dash thing that we're not doing well yet Mm -hmm. that I think could make a big difference. Yeah, we need an Asian Tristan Walker is is the next step. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Well, I, yeah. I would also add to that last comment because we're out of time, but I've been talking recently about this notion of what would Chad do? <laughs> Chad being the, you know, privileged white man that lives in all of us. Mediocre white man. Me- yes, <laughs> mediocre white man that lives in all of us. But I think to your point, yes, absolutely, access to capital, but I also think as folks of color, we need to ask for more. We need to demand yeah, yeah, more, that's right? True. And so... Like I, I have someone I was working with recently who happens to be a white man and we were talking about like, well, the strategy and I, I got like a no and I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to let it lie. He's like, no, ask her again. And I was like, huh, okay, <laughs> all right, yeah, what? yeah, like, well, I'll ask her mm-hmm. again. So, you know, I think part of it is getting comfortable with discomfort, but also getting comfortable with like asking for more yeah. and demanding more. Yeah. If there are any Asian women listening to this who want to talk about salary negotiations, Rhea, I'm sure you're good at that. I'm good at that. I'm actually not. Well, I'm getting better, but I actually talk about on this podcast how entire Mm. 12 years I was ED. I never asked for a raise. (gasps) I know. Rhea. Well, partially because I knew I had to raise it. Like okay. I, okay. I mean, yeah, I, got, okay, but... I got raises. I, I don't want to say that I didn't get raises, but I never yeah. asked for I mean, for I one. can't say that I'm particularly good at it either. Yeah. Okay, well, y'all need to come talk to me. We'll have another. Sace's School of Negotiating a Raise. Everyone call her. So I will actually include both of your contact info in yeah, the show notes. So great, if great. folks want to get in touch, you have two fierce Asian ladies at the ready for your own personal army. Ladies, so fun to have you. We're going to have you come back another time and talk about all the things. Thanks, Rhea. Thank you.